Welcome to the Jao Podcast, a series of conversations between writer-director Rika O'Hara, myself, composer John O'Podmore, and members of the team drawn together to create a feature film based on Lord Byron's epic poem. In this episode, we'll be talking once again to our production designer and art director, Dimitris Ziakis, who has so much to share with us that he could fill an entire podcast of his own. Welcome back, Dimitris. Hello, Bruno. <laughs> Horses have played such an important part, and it's interesting how often they've cropped up in these podcasts. But they even played a part in the setting of the film. In Alexandropolis, the idea was to find somewhere that was in a day's ride from Istanbul. So we ended up um, setting our Alexandropolis in northeastern Greece. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about this region and about the specific locations that we've selected? Okay. Uh, now, Alexandropolis, I've been there once, in the, in the actual Alexandropolis of today. And... For me, which I know the territory, it was something really well known. It's this kind of uh, Balkan thing. Everything goes by the Balkan way. You will see uh, amazing old Ottoman buildings and beautiful mosques, Christians and Muslims living together. The nature around there is really amazing. It's a very fertile land. And uh, you can feel the the old glory, because uh, Alexandropolis and Andrianopolis was the actual capital of the Sultan before he gets into Istanbul. Uh, at the 14th century, Alexandropolis and Andrianopolis were the capital centers of the Ottoman Turks, uh, where they were planning their attacks on Istanbul or Constantinopolis. And now, Alexandropolis is uh, really peculiar because you will see in the same building square, you will find Ottoman remains, Byzantine remains, and Roman remains. So it's an amazing mixture of styles and architecture, and it's not really strange to walk in the street and suddenly to realize that you're walking on a, on a piece of a, an ancient Roman street. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's, fantastic. it's, it's great. Or you walk by a mosque, and there you see a Greek column, a capital, is incorporated into the wall. You will see a Roman scripture somewhere there dedicated to one of uh, the Caesars. But this could be easily a part of the door of an Islamic mosque. And that's exactly what all, all these uh, Orientalists were mad about, like Byron, that in such small places they could find so glorious uh, remainings of the past. Locals were just ignoring them or just uh, thinking that they were magical or like in Athens of 19th century or 18th century, Turks didn't dare to touch the ancient columns because they were afraid that the ancient, whoever they were, they had put these columns in this place to imprison ancient genes, ancient evil spirits. Oh, yeah. oh wow. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, they wouldn't touch them. And that was the, the reality, I think, from whatever I've read from uh, authors of the 19th century, that the Turks were respecting, sometimes were more respectful to the ancient uh, ruins than the Greeks themselves. 
Fascinating. Thinking about the Orientalists of the 19th century finding places inspiring because they echoed the glory of the past, ties in quite nicely with us using the Hotel Imaret as a location. Is there anything you can tell us from your perspective about the Imaret? We've spoken to Dankaro already about the cistern, for example, but is there anything more you can tell us about the architecture and design? I, well, I could, I could tell quite a few things, but I won't say much. <laughs> <laughs> After the revolution, Greeks tried their best to bring down everything that was reminding them of the oppression they had during the Ottoman times. So, about the Emirate itself, I had to travel to Istanbul to see something of similar beauty and uh, so, so full of uh, the Ottoman spirit. As I can recall, this amazing central room where we are planning to, to shoot many scenes, like the living room of the Effendi, uh, for me, I've seen such beautiful rooms only in uh, some parts of Istanbul where there are some beautiful buildings from the time of uh, the great sultans, uh, like Suleiman, yes. Suleiman, the Suleiman. Suleiman. Because as this was the golden era of Ottoman architecture, of Ottoman art. Yes. It was the best time when finally the Turks accepted that they learned from the Persians. <laughs> there are so many things coming from the Persian architecture, the Persian art, that influenced the Turks so much that you can see these things in the Blue Mosque, for example, in Istanbul. I mean, there I've seen such a beautiful thing in Tehran and in Istanbul. And then amazing building of the Imaret, which for me represents the best connection of Balkan, not Ottoman, Balkan architecture, if you, if you know what I mean. Ah, okay. Making a real distinction between the two styles. There is, there is a distinction, John. When I travelled the first time in Istanbul, and I was seeing this, for, to my eyes, very Turkish uh, characteristic, which is these parts of the building that protrude on the upper floor, I always think of that like if they were Turkish. And then I heard Turks calling them Greek. Okay. This is a Greek thing. <laughs> I said, what? No. <laughs> you, you, you have to have a time machine to realize where some things come from. Yeah. In, in fact, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've seen this kind of architecture all around the Balkans, in Bulgaria, Kosovo, and in Yugoslavia, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. For instance, one of the best things I've ever seen in, in terms of, uh, of a movie set, it could be a movie set. It's, a, it's an amazing city in uh, Albania. It's called Girokastin. And it's like if you are in a time machine, in a time travel machine. And it's like if you have jumped straight to the 17th century or the 18th century uh, in Ali Pasa's palace. And everything looks the same. They have maintained it in the most amazing way. And it feels like you are back in the past, mm -hmm. I, I really feel a little bit angry against my ancestors <laughs> that they haven't kept more Muslim architecture alive. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, one aspect of Muslim architecture or Turkish architecture that's of importance to us with the setting of the Jaor is the harem. Yeah. And the, the structure of a harem. Can you let us know how that actually appears architecturally? Well, usually a harem was um, in the deepest part of the house where no strangers could have any access. The Imaret harem, harem. There is not harem in Imaret. Imaret wasn't a house. Uh, I, th I believe Imaret was built as a seminary. So 
there are no place for women. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah, women <laughs> wouldn't get educated. No, no, no. And then, you know, it's uh, the harem being, uh, you know, place for women and the children. Exactly. Clifftop Hotel Imaret provides the setting for Hassan's home and harem. The signature sound of this vital location is provided by a female Mongol slave who fills the space with the magical sound of the pipa, here played by Jema. The Japanese translation for harem is the back palace, the back court. Exactly, exactly. So in the rich houses, usually they were surrounding the harem with a garden. A garden which shows all the art, all the amazing Persian, allow me, I believe that the influence, the basic influence is Persian, uh, all the amazing Persian art of garden making. Usually in the Western uh, literature, Harems and gardens are very strongly connected and they are depicted as magical places full of birds, full of uh, beautiful flowers, full of trees, uh, fountains, water. And uh, they are places of peace and serenity. But I think the truth was a little bit different. Oppression was a very basic thing. <laughs> I think that uh, the inner structure of the harem was also one with a very strong hierarchy. Uh, do you know the word? Yes, of course you do. Yes, yes. hierarchy. Yes. yes, hierarchy. Yes. Well, that's Greek, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it is Greek. Basically, Rika, all our languages are all Greek if you look at it long <laughs> enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, only the words that you have to. Uh, to think about it. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> so, as far as I know, it was really difficult for a young uh, odelisk to have an opinion uh, if the elder woman of the harem was thinking different. So, from uh, stories that I've read about the Turkish Shalton harems, Valide, the queen's mother, was so strong that she could change a government. She could put a sultan out of place if she wanted to. Wow. Therefore, the sultans had developed this general uh, habit of poisoning their uh, brothers. Uh, ah, I see. Oh, that's where that comes yes. from. <laughs> the Turkish drama, The Magnificent Century, is about that. In Japan, we have those daytime dramas taking place in uh, Edo castle harems. All the women beautiful women competing with each other, jealousy, bitch fests, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so. that's, that's what happens in the Karim. So, <laughs> so as long as they needed some male presence in there, but without uh, the male characteristics, they were employing eunuchs. And the funny thing is, 
that I was always thinking that Unix was something that was used in the Ottoman courtyard, in the Ottoman currents. But then I found out that it was also something that was very usual in the Byzantine courtyard. I searched a little bit more and I found out that this is also something that comes from the Persian culture <laughs> of, of the royal courtyards. And it was also exactly the same in the Chinese court as well. Right. Yes. Actually, a eunuch became a Navy admiral in the 14th century, Jono? Well, it's not quite proven, but there's the idea that in the Ming dynasty they had these treasure ships yes. that ended up going all over the world. And this was in our early 1400s. Yes. There's possibility that they may have got to South America and even Australia. Mm, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, Zheng yeah. He, 1371 to 1435. Yes, that's, that's the Ming, Ming dynasty. Guy, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, it's actually, uh, Dimitris, you know, it was, we were half joking saying that everything originally comes from Greece, but a number of years ago, I was in the National Museum of Kyushu in southern Japan in a town called Dazaifu. And what I was astonished to find out was the influence of antique Greek sculpture on Japanese Buddhist sculpture, 3D representations of deities, particularly in the faces and the torso, were informed from exposure to ancient Greek sculpture, which really shocked me. But of course, that's again, this is this constant theme that we run across in in these podcasts. It's the Silk Road. We should blame Alexander for that. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this influence, I guess, even reached Japan. But the funny thing about Harem, one of the most characteristic things in the architecture that was influenced by Karem, by the existence of Karem, was this thing that, in general, we call Masrabeya. It means something that has been constructed in Egypt, something structured by Arabian culture. It's this kind of wooden or um, clay structure, but there is a pattern, a very fine and thin pattern that has been constructed so you can see through it only if you are close to it. Probably it's something that you have seen in uh, in many Orientalist uh, pictures where the window should be. It's covered with this thin web-like structure made out of wood where you can't see in when you're walking down the street. You can look up, you can see the masrabeya, but you can't see if somebody's looking at you through it. And usually that was the only contact that women had with the outworld, with the world of men. Shadows become such a huge element in art design in like Orientalist movies, like exactly. von Sternberg's Morocco. Yes. Miss Marlene Dietrich. Exactly, exactly. I was stunned by how much that was used in that movie. Yeah, because during the 30s, it was also the second big wave of Orientalism. You know, it's funny because still people, when they think of Ottoman architecture, usually, without knowing it, they use always Persian references. All these domes will look like uh, onions, all these elaborate tiles on the walls. Arabesque. Arabesque, exactly, which is Persian. And uh, to be honest, Arabian architecture is not something that really exists. You know, forgive me if that sounded really strange, but uh, all the influence on the eastern of the Mediterranean Sea, in fact, the Persian influence is so strong, is even stronger than Greek. It has affected everything. I mean, all these amazing tile works in Topkapi, 
comes straight from Persian culture. Put them side to side, you will understand how much more elaborate and how much more rich are the Persian originals than the ones from Izmir, uh, from Smyrna. But all this art has been transported from Persia, which was the kingdom of heaven for all the Turks and the Seljuks and the Ottomans and the Mongols. As they were passing by, they were just left in awe after seeing Samarkand, you know, this magical city, or Isfahan. Mm. So that was their idea of luxury. That was their idea of fine architecture, of fine artistic expression. So they transported that into Constantinople. And then after they found the equivalent beauty coming from the Byzantine art, they made this amazing fine mixture of arts. This is what we call today the Ottoman Baroque, the Ottoman architecture. Mm-hmm. That's also echoed in the literature as well. I mean, it's interesting in the script of the Jawor what an important role Persian as a poetic language plays. Yes, and music. And music, absolutely, absolutely. From Persia, that all that architecture, architecture, music influence came to Japan too. So it's maybe it is that everything comes from Persia. <laughs> <laughs> well, to put it this way, everything comes from uh, Mesopotamia. Everything comes from there. <laughs> yes, yes, that the fertile crescent, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. This is where so many things were born for the first time. You have been listening to the Gyeru podcast by the creators of the feature film based on Lord Byron's 1813 best-selling poem. I am the writer-director Rika O'Hara and... I'm composer John O'Podmore. Rika has been joining us from Los Angeles while I'm here in London. Thank you again for listening and look out for the next episode of the Jaor Podcast. Podcast.